was uh, restful amongst all of the busyness of the holiday. Uh, hopefully you did not eat too much. I think the older I get, the less I eat at Thanksgiving. Even though I don't eat little, I still get plenty. But it's, uh, I remember a fond memory of when I was around seven or eight years old. I got so full that, I mean, you just got so sick from eating. I still remember that, hol- that Thanksgiving, that week. Um, but I pray that you enjoyed your family. Those of you who have traveled, we're glad that you're back. We have fa- several families who are still traveling this weekend, so please be praying for them as they return. Um, but here at Sovereign Grace, we are now entering into our Advent season. This morning, if you will, turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. The book of Galatians, chapter 3. And then if you will stand in reverence for the reading of God's word, please. Galatians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Actually, beginning in verse 15. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but by God. But but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And this first day of Advent where we begin to think and pray and prepare our hearts for worship and celebration for the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. You tell us in this text exactly what the whole thing was about. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts, that you would fill our minds with truth, That the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, was not a second thought. It was not an afterthought. It was not a correction for something that you did not foresee. Instead, dear God, your son came just as you planned. You foresaw this from the very beginning. And you made a promise, even at the point of failure and sin that entered the world. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would bring to our hearts and memories exactly this hope that mankind has strived for for generations and generations and generations. The hope of those born before Christ were hoping for the coming of Christ. Those of us now born after Christ, we have hope in what Christ has accomplished. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would bring to us a sense of hope of looking to you. 
Let this time be for you, God. Speak boldly in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, please. The Christmas season is that time of anticipation. How many people still look forward to Christmas morning for the, for the boxes under the tree? I still do. Rhonda, my lovely wife, has already started putting boxes under the tree, and I haven't found one with my name on it yet. But I'm sure I have confidence that it will be there. Amen. I remember as a child, we all have childhood memories, but uh, Christmas for us uh, as children in the house I grew up in, we, were, we didn't have a lot, but we always looked forward to Christmas because that was a time of getting new things. Now, my mother was a, a very good mother, but she was also a very strict mother, and we always had the stockings hanging on the fireplace. Did you all do that? I mean, families still do that, but my mother, we had the stockings by the fireplace, and it was a real fireplace with real fire in it, and my mother every year would give each of her children uh, a proportion of the sticks and the switches that we earned that year, along with a gift. It was always in love. It was never anything that was negative. It was never anything that was in a punishment. It was just her ways of showing us, I love you, but you're not, you're not that perfect yet. But she still loved us and gave us all that we wanted. Here in the gospel, in, I'm sorry, in Galatians, we see here a hint of the gospel. We see here Paul teaching the church and teaching us now what the gospel is all about. And that's what Christmas is. Christmas is this season where the promise that God granted us in the very beginning of time comes to be. God makes promises. And he never breaks. Amen? I don't know about you, but I, I, there's been many a promise that I've made to people over the years and even to my family that I have to sometimes come back and say, I'm sorry, I know I promised, but I can't fulfill it. And you have to apologize. God will never apologize because He has never broken His promises. And Christmas is that season where the promise of salvation that God gives fallen humanity in the very beginning, it comes to be. The greatest gift of all is the salvation granted us through Jesus Christ, through God's grace. That's the thing about a gift, isn't it? A gift is not something that we are entitled to. A gift is not something that we that we demand a gift is something that is granted to us even though we don't deserve it. And my mother's love for us, she wasn't punishing us with the sticks and the switches in the, in the stocking. It was to remind us, I'm giving you grace because I love you. And she was raising us by herself and doing the best she could. Genesis chapter 3 points to this need for a promise that will tie into our text in Galatians chapter 3. So if you can, turn to Genesis chapter 3 for me. Because this is exactly what Paul is pointing to. In the very beginning of creation, God created all things and he looked upon it and he said, it is good. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see here that amidst the goodness of God's creation, there was a fall. 
Genesis chapter 3. I want to just go ahead and let's just read it. Beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, that's bad enough. Doubting God was the very first sin. Listening to the serpent. And the serpent takes just a hint of truth and distorts it to where it's appealing for our own glory. And that's what happens here. Adam and Eve, they sought their own glory above God's glory. And they fell. Now we continue in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to, me with, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we see the consequences of failure, the consequences of sin. Not only was there a, a doubting of God, then suddenly there becomes a separation from God. But notice God is not the one who withdraws. It is Adam and Eve themselves who withdraw from God's presence because the sin that brought them wisdom that shattered their innocence caused them to withdraw from God's holiness. You see that? They were shamed. The the, the attitude of shame. Matter of fact, we don't have shame much anymore. Would you agree? I think shame is something that is awful, but shame is something that is important for us to be restored back into God's graces, to understand our failures, to understand where we have let God down, to understand where we have sinned against His holiness. Shame is that thing within us that allows us to realize our position before a holy and righteous God. But notice how God is treating Adam and Eve here. He's he's a good father, isn't he? In his good graces, he is coming after them. He's walking in the garden as he always does, looking for his creation, the man and his wife. And God calls out to them in verse 9, very much like a father or a good parent would call out to a child, knowing that the child has sinned, knowing that the child has broken the, 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 the china, or whatever it is, where are you? Did you do this? Oh, do you know who did this? 
You always give them an opportunity, right? It's just like a good father working here, right? But God mercifully here, God's voice, even though Adam and Eve cannot be in God's presence walking with him in the garden because they're, they're in shame, God through his mercy still lends his voice. They could still hear him. You notice this? Even though, even though God's presence can no longer be in the presence of sin, God still lends his voice so that Adam and Eve can hear his words so that they can hear his promise. You hear this? This this all sets up the stage here in verse 14. Look here in verses 14 through 16. Now, here's the main point here that ties into the gospel narrative and into Christmas. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis chapter 3 paints a very glim picture. But in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the sorrow, there is hope. There is a gospel message being preached by God Himself. His voice is proclaiming a promise, even in the midst of the curse. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Look here, right here. God's speaking here. He's talking to the serpent, but at the same time, the woman and the man, Adam and Eve, are listening to every word. And and even as God is speaking to the serpent, He's also speaking to them. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, this is what Paul is pointing out here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Notice what God said in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. He's telling the serpent, there is going to be a war. You have started it. And there's going to be strife between you and her offspring. Now notice here, what Paul explains here is when we read here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we may think this is talking about multiples of generations of offspring, which would be true. But Paul points out something very specific in Galatians chapter 3. Look here what he says in verse 16, talking about God's promises. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, plural, Referring to many, but referring to one. And who is that singular offspring according to Paul here? Christ. God 
in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, is pointing to a promise. There has been something that is broken here. God is saying, you have separated yourself from me, but I'm going to come after you. You have withdrawn your presence from my presence. You have doubted me. You have elevated your own glory above my glory. And you have gone against my word. I can no longer physically be in your presence, but you can hear my voice. And God promises, as a good father does, we're going to fix this. I want to not let you stay where you are. We're going to fix this. And I have a plan, and I'm going to send an offspring to come. And he's going to restore what is broken. This is the very first gospel sermon in Genesis chapter 3. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the first prophecy of Christmas, this first sermon of Christ, was spoken by God himself in the garden. And it's a promise that has always been there. It's not some afterthought that God said, oops, we've made a mistake. Let's backtrack and figure out what we're doing. God knew in the very beginning what was happening. He promised that Christ would come in the very beginning of creation. Jesus was there. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus the Son was present at the beginning of creation. He was not an afterthought. You see, Here's what Martin Luther tells us about this, about Genesis chapter 3. He says, thus because God is threatening in general when he says her seed, he is mocking Satan and making him afraid of all women. You know what the blessing of childbirth is? That's what we see here in Genesis chapter 3. Now, now ladies, I never gave birth to any babies. I've not been there. Now, I've been there holding the hand of a woman, my wife giving birth to babies. I was there when my son was born. And, and, you know, he was a big one when he was born too. And, and, and I was always reminded of that. But there is something glorious about childbirth that points to the gospel. I want you to ponder that for a minute. God, in taking something that is beautiful... He takes the beauty of childbirth and he crushes the head of the serpent and he says, the offspring singular will come. That's the first Christmas message. That's the first Christmas sermon. This passage in Genesis chapter 3 is often called the Proto-Evangelion, the first sermon of evangelism, the first gospel message. Amen? Now see, Eve's punishment here, here's how God's mercy works. Here's how God's love works. There, is, there are consequences to sin. Amen? Or oh me. We cannot whitewash sin. And God being a holy and righteous God cannot allow sin to just be ignored. Therefore, a price had to be paid. Now, Eve's punishment was that in childbirth, she was going to have great pains. And I am sorry for that. I've never experienced that. But in the midst of all that struggle and pain, God is giving 
Eve hope. In the midst of the struggle of childbirth, he's telling Eve, there is hope. Your offspring will fix this. Your offspring will come and correct this mistake. And so despite Eve's sin, she keeps the blessing of motherhood and remains with Adam, but she has the promise that from her will come the singular seed who will crush the head of Satan. Wow. That's the first gospel message. Now, some traditional Christian thinking sees that Mary... The mother of Jesus is the one who defeats Satan by these words. But we as Protestants, we universally agree that this text points to Christ, not anything else. So this promise that God gives through the prophets brings hope. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and giving them hope and reminding them of the purpose of the law. The law was not something that saves you. The law was something that teaches you about God's covenant. The law was intended to be an educational tool for you. Because of your sin, you needed structure. Because of your sin, you needed boundaries and this is what, God, what Paul is teaching us here, that the law, the Mosaic law, was not something that took place of the covenant. The Mosaic law was part of the process of God fulfilling the covenant and the promise. Look here in verse 19. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul is saying that the law was necessary until Christ came. Christ fulfilling the promise. Why then the law, verse 19? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring singular should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now verse 21. Is the law then contradicted? Contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice that Jesus Christ fulfills the promise to those who who believe. Unfortunately, according to what, I, what we see here in this text and in many other places in the New Testament, those who do not believe do not receive the gift of salvation and do not receive the gift of the fulfilled promise. You notice this? In other words, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, who fulfills the promise of God, is not a gift that everybody gets willy-nilly. It is a gift that is granted in a particular way to particular people, those who believe. Now notice here in verse 19, Galatians 3 verse 19, what Paul says here in verse 19 is, why then the law? He's talking about it was needed because of our sin until Christ comes to fulfill the promise. 
See, the prophets who wrote all of the Old Testament prophecies, who wrote, and even Moses who wrote the Mosaic Law, all of this, all of the prophets, all looked forward with hope to one that God had promised. When you look back in the Old Testament and you read all of the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, when you read what God is telling us, even through the history of the historical books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, there is a, an underlying theme of hope. God is sending our Savior. Amen? Just as we are looking forward to December 25th, 24 days and counting, if you've got children at home, they're probably itching. They're prob- they probably have their mark-, mark off, right? We have this thing called an Advent calendar. We had one when I was a kid growing up, right? You started it like 24 days before Christmas, and every day you got like a little candy cane or something, right? Did y'all do that in your childhood? Yeah. See, there, the, 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 the idea of Advent is this idea of anticipation and hope of the day that comes. And what Paul is writing, telling us here in Galatians chapter 3 is that the law written by the prophets was written with an attitude of hope, not out of legalism, but out of pointing us to a hope of a future fulfilled, a promise that God is going to keep. Think about that. Whenever somebody wants to shake their finger at you and give you legalism about Christianity and say that you must do this and you must do that and you better cross this T and dot this I or you're not a Christian, point them to Galatians chapter 3 and say, Paul says that's not what the law was for. The law was to give us hope. How dare we take hope away from the new Christian? You ever seen a new baby Christian who doesn't know any better? They're the greatest, aren't they? It's amazing until we as Christians and the church, we start weighing them down with burdens and regulations and expectations. I mean, the the law, the Word of God brings hope. This book is not something to beat somebody over the head with. It is something to show people a glorious promise fulfilled. And we live in a world where people are desperate and they're anxious. Depression is at an all-time high. Anxiety is running rampant amongst the younger generation coming behind us. I don't get that. It's because we're comparing our lives with someone else or something else. We see the perfect life in social media or in movies or in whatever it is. We we have two different... You realize that we have two different lives now in 2019 going into 2020. This is something that is unprecedented in human history. For the first time in the condition of the humanities, we now have... We have two selves. Did you know that? We have the real self, the one that's in this physical world, the one that gets sick and gets tired and gets hungry. And then we have the cyber self or the digital self that is a fantasy. And for the first time in human history, both selves are valid. It's no wonder we're confused. It's no wonder that we're lost and wandering with anxiety. Because if we dig into and embrace the digital self that is not real... And imagine ourselves like how we could be because we see all of the glitz and the glamour of the media. 
and the photoshopped images and the perfect lighting and the perfect life, of course we're going to be depressed because it's not real. We, we, we compare the digital self with the real self and we realize that they're not the same and we're disappointed in the real self. That's why people are so anxious. That's why people are so depressed. But if we look at what the gospel tells us here, there is hope for a lost and destructive world. There is hope through God's promise. Now look here in verse 24 of Galatians chapter 3. Now look, I'm sorry, let's go to verse 23 into 24. Paul continues, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So here we have the biblical doctrine of being justified by faith in Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. This idea in verse 24 is this idea of the law as a guardian, or the King James Version actually uses the translation, the schoolmaster, which I think the schoolmaster is probably the closest translation to the original Greek. The Greek word here for guardian in the ESV or schoolmaster in the King James is actually a word that is now used in education, the paideia. The law was our schoolmaster teaching us about the coming of Christ, pointing to the hope that we have in God's promise. Now the prophets here foretold that hope would be fulfilled in God's promise. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call His name Emmanuel, pointing ahead with hope. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace looking forward with hope. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And that's just, that's just, man. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Wouldn't it be awesome if we as the church embraced again this idea of hope? Not just hope that our lives are better, but hope that hope in Christ, that Christ fulfills all that is missing all that we lack fulfills all that we are unable to do because we are fallen creatures, sinful before a holy, righteous God. Now, I want us to understand here as we close this idea of hope. 
You see, we can misunderstand what hope is if we're not careful because the biblical understanding of hope is not optimism. In other words, we, we, we lie to people and say, oh, just, you know, just lift your chin and just, have a, just make yourself think happy thoughts and, and look forward with optimism and your life will be better. That's not what the Bible tells us about hope. The idea of hope here has three different understandings in Scripture. There's three different words that throughout Scripture point to hope or is translated as hope. One word means literally, and all of these ideas of hope lead into an idea of anticipation. Hope is anticipation for something. It's not optimism. It's rooted in faith that to anticipate a real end. Noah, when he was building his ark, had hope waiting for the salvation that God would bring through this ark during the flood. It was not a, a, future, a blind optimism. Well, maybe God will take care of us and we're just going to build a boat just in case. Right? You see where we're going? It was the idea of hope to wait for God's provision for Noah and his family. As they were waiting for the floodwaters to recede after the flood, Noah had hope that God would provide. Another idea of, of hope is this idea of to wait for. It's a state of tension waiting for release. It's as if you've got, uh, imagine a cord pulled tight. Two people are pulling it or two forces are pulling a cord tight and there's this state of tension and you're waiting for that cord to be released by somebody because the tension cannot last forever. And that's the idea of hope here in Scripture that there is this state of tension between God who is holy and righteous and creation which has fallen and they're going different directions and there's this tension between them and this idea of hope is that the cord pulled tight would somehow one day relax. We're waiting for the, cord, the tension in the cord to no longer be tense. Now lastly, Peter speaks of a living hope in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about how we can become new person in Christ. You see, Christian hope is a, cho is a chance to wait for God to bring about a future. It, the Christian hope here is that God has promised to bring about a future that is as surprising as a crucified, risen Savior. That's amazing. In other words, there is no future optimism here that, well, maybe Christ will do what God says He will. That's optimism. Because optimism has a hint of doubt to it. But the biblical understanding of hope is waiting with eager anticipation for someone tied to the history of God's faithfulness in the past. You see, optimism is simply choosing to see in difficult situations how this situation could work out for the best, maybe. Biblical hope is dependent on God's faithfulness, what He has already done in the past. He is trustworthy, and if He has 
if he has kept his promises in the past, I know with hope he will keep his promise tomorrow. That's the difference between optimism and biblical hope. Amen? See, hope is not focused on circumstances. Hope is focused on what God has promised. That's the difference. And we as Christians at this time of the year, as we look forward with anticipation to the birth of our Savior, we already know He was born. We have the historical evidence. We have the biblical evidence. He was born. He lived. He died. He rose again. That is undeniable. But if we are in sin, and all of us are, even though even those of us in this room who are redeemed and pay and our sin has been atoned for in Christ Jesus, we are still in this already not yet tension. Our sins are already paid for. But our sanctification is not yet fulfilled. It's a process. Every single day, it's almost a renewal of, Dear God, I love you. Forgive me again and again and again and again. And He continues to shape us and He continues to mold us and He continues to create us into these new creatures in Christ. This year of Christmas, of Advent, my challenge for us all is that we would embrace the hope that Jesus has already fulfilled. Amen? You may know somebody in your life. You may have had Thanksgiving dinner with a family member or a friend this last weekend that you know that they are wandering without hope. And you see it in their eyes, and you see it in their voices, and you see it in their actions, and you see it in their desperation. They're clinging for something. The biblical hope that is promised through God's covenant with humanity at the fall in the garden is a promise that God fulfilled and is available for all who believe. Amen? And as Bill was teaching this morning in the Sunday school class, it is our privilege to guide people in the gospel through His Word. I mean, this is what I teach all the time. If you have difficulty in figuring out how to share the gospel, yes, you can tell people your personal testimony, and they are powerful. But you know how God saves people? You know how God changes lives? He uses His Word. This right here. You don't know what to tell people? Take them through a Bible study. I have seen more and more people saved through merely listening to and studying and digging deeper into God's Word than any other five-point evangelism program. Amen? Evangelism is important. But I think the most valuable and effective evangelism is taking somebody through God's Word one-on-one, getting to know them, understanding through God's love who they are, where they are. Say, hey, let's meet together in God's Word. 
And then God speaks. And we don't have to do much except just be obedient and say, here's what God says. And then the Holy Spirit does the work. And then God saves. We don't. I don't care what the evangelism program is. And evangelism programs are fine. Evangelism programs are intended to motivate the church folks to get up off of their seats and go do something for the gospel. That's fine. But that is not the end with all for the salvation. It is God's Word that does it. And if we point people to God's promises, if we point people to the covenants that God has made all throughout Scripture, and we say God is trustworthy and He's never let us down and He loves you and He saves you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Will you embrace Him today? Will you love Him? Will you surrender and repent? That's the message of Christmas. Amen?